God knows. He knows all of it. He knows about everything. Yes, even that. He was there. He always has been from our perspective. He was, he is, he forever will be. And we cannot fathom his omniscience. Before we were even formed in the womb, God knew us, has a divine purpose for us. And if you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit of God, if your heart is pierced by the words that I've just said, then he absolutely, it's been true forever, loved you anyway. In his perfect foreknowledge, he even foresaw every one of our missteps. He foreknew all of them. When we confess sin, we're clearing the air between us and God. We're taking a step back closer to him. He didn't go anywhere. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. He was not caught off guard. He knows what we're gonna say before we speak. He knows what we need before we even ask him. In his perfect sovereignty, in his omniscience, he already knew about your failure and already knew you before the foundations of the earth. In the temporal sense, that confession of sin is our way of once again walking in step with the spirit as opposed to walking in step with the flesh. But God already knew about our sin anyway. Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He already knew, he already knows. There's nothing we can hide from him. Here is a QR code that you can use to see all the cross-references that we'll draw from. Today we are taking a one-week break from our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke because it is the anniversary of the date that Roe versus Wade was signed into law. It is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And churches all across the U.S. are all studying the same thing at the same time. When I wrote curriculum for Lifeway, this became a big, big challenge, trying to carve up a book of the Bible into pieces that would fit equally across 13 weeks of a given quarter, and then have to take a break from that study because every curriculum line, the the theological one that moved chronologically for hipsters with beards and the topical series that was there for sissies and the expository one that Jesus used, all together would just take a break from the regularly scheduled study plans to do this. And they are doing it now. It is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, S-O-H-L, or Soul Sunday for short. I've got a story to share with you about what my son Asher and I learned marching on Capitol Hill two days ago in the March for Life in Washington, D.C. So this QR code will show you the various cross-references that we're we're going to use. I know that in a given crowd, somebody somewhere dreads Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because there's been abortion in your past. And you feel picked on, like this is the one day of the year that you just zoom in on my sin, Jesse. This is done in alignment with churches across the U.S. And it's done with a proper sense of fear and trembling on my part. And it's something that I must share with you from the word of God. If you want to find a church that will tell you God is perfectly okay with abortion, that God is perfectly okay with assisted suicide, that God is perfectly okay somehow with human trafficking, whatever your sin du jour, if you want to find a church that will placate you in your sin, you can probably find one, but you won't find the anointing of the Spirit of God there. And you won't find the truth of his word there. I do not take pleasure in offending friends who have struggled. I know what it's like to be called out by the word of God and then have to preach it. It's not easy preaching. It's not easy. But I want you to know what the word of God says because every time I have done this, 
dreading it every week leading up to it. Every time I've done this, God has moved. God has changed hearts. God has even used the text to call one abortionist, a woman who performed abortions for Kaiser Permanente in Bellevue, minutes from where we are right now, to repentance, thereby reducing Kaiser Permanente's capacity to perform abortions to the tune of about 500 per year. We looked at her contract together and we saw that she was not required to perform that procedure and she could, in a sincerely held religious belief, object to the procedure. And so it would have been wrong for, wrongful termination had they fired her. And so having performed about 10 abortions per week in the years leading up to that moment where the Holy Spirit of God gripped her heart with the word of God, the capacity for abortions right where we are was reduced by about 500 per year. And it came from the word of God, moved by the spirit of God. I will not get in his way. I will not apologize for the word of God. I will invite you in because I want you to know that God knows about your abortion. I also am aware of the fact that the majority of the people in this room were already pro-life when they walked in. And so my hope is to give you a sermon that you can give to your pro-choice friends. Or perhaps may the Spirit of God use it to stir you onto action this week through our devotions and through our curriculum. You'll have some practical applications that you can take. Our church has had a ministry since our founding wherein we are praying specifically for this. We have and always have had an abortion clinic prayer ministry. And in the end of this text, where we see what God thinks about the taking of innocent children's lives, whether abortion is a part of your story or not, I want you to know that God knows about all of your sins. He knew about your sins and called you anyway, loves you anyway. That the grace of God is unfathomable and there's no sin that can compare to the atoning work of Christ upon the cross. There's no sin that can counter or compete with the resurrection power of Jesus. If you've had an abortion, would you repent, call upon the name of Jesus, be saved, and be reunited with your baby one day? Amen, Redemption Church? He loves you. He knows. He's always known. He knew. And he loves you. Would you repent today. And so, big surprise, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to share the gospel. Does that shock anybody? Nope. <laughs> and so even if this is not even on your radar, I think it should be. I think this is the blackest spot on American history. I think it's worse than slavery because it has cost more lives. I think that this is the darkest sin of our culture, of our day, of our age. And I think that it's all the more particular to Washington State since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, there are many states that have nearly eradicated abortions. I have said for years, count me among the abolitionists. It's wrong. It's always been wrong. It's always wrong. It is sin. It is murder. Abolish it. I have always counted myself among the abolitionists. And now I, an abolitionist, find myself in an abortion destination state. Idaho, as a state, has taken measures to repent from this sin. And now Washington, as a state, with clear words from our governor, has taken an adamant, militaristic, effectively bloodthirsty stance to see to it that as many abortions as can possibly happen, happen here. And companies whose products we love have seen to it that they will even go out of their way and break their budget to fund a trip for a woman to come here to have an abortion. And if you're gonna go to Washington State to have an abortion, where are you gonna go? You're gonna come here. And so we now, since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, as Washingtonian Christians, if you are pro-life like me, if you're an abolitionist like me, you find yourself now on the front lines, not only of church planting in the United States, 
but of the pro-life movement where it counts the most. Now, this has been handed down to the states. Roe versus Wade ought not have ever been codified because it was legally untenable in the first place. Now that error has been corrected by the Supreme Court, that is a good thing. And there are now thousands of babies who are alive. Can we rejoice in the thousands of babies that get to live since the overturning of Roe versus Wade? Praise God for that. Go figure, when you stop killing babies, more babies are alive. Does everybody follow that calculus or should we review it? It is a beautiful and good thing. But while we rejoice in the corporate sense, as the United States, one of the United States, our state in particular has gone the opposite direction. Having corporately repented of multiple sins in our past, having repented from the sin of slavery, no other nation in history has ever fought a civil war to end slavery. We're the only one. Having corporately aligned ourselves with God's chosen Old Testament nation of Israel and experienced blessings as a result of it, exactly as God's word said. I believe that God will bless the U.S. I think that it is a good thing that we corporately have repented from abortion in part, but it's not enough, is it? It's not enough. It's not enough to sit back and say, well, we're killing fewer babies now than we were before. It's not enough. And you and I find ourselves positioned perfectly. What does the word of God say on this matter? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, do not murder. Abortion is murder. The word abortion is a misnomer because it presupposes that there was going to be a pregnancy and now the pregnancy has itself been aborted. Like a pilot getting ready to take off and then aborting the takeoff. He does not take off. He does not leave the runway. That is not what happens in an abortion. Okay, it does not abort a pregnancy. It kills the baby. The woman is prima facie pregnant and then the child is dead. That's not an abortion. It is the wrongful ending of a human life. We call that murder. So it's murder is what it is. And God said, do not murder. So if you have come from another church that does not go through the whole counsel of God, if you came from another church that said, listen, God's okay with your sin. And there are denominations that do this. I have seen quote unquote ordained women proclaim this and they actually try to extol abortion, lifting it up almost as though it were some sort of twisted dark satanic sacrament, try to atone for it, apologize for it, lift it up, extol it. God have mercy on us. That is a false prophet from the pit of hell. Her destruction has not been sleeping. God's word in 2 Peter says that her blackest darkness has been reserved for her. That kind of teaching is straight from hell itself. And I'm just quoting 2 Peter here. The scariest words in the Bible are reserved for false teachers. They're not reserved for people who struggle with sin. They're not reserved for the scared young woman who is pregnant out of wedlock and doesn't know how she's gonna be able to afford a crib and diapers and things like that. And she's struggling with the decision and she came to the Redemption Church and she's gonna find out pretty soon that she's surrounded by a bunch of loving families who will do anything to care for her baby with her. Amen, Redemption Church? The scary part of scripture, the people who should be scared are those who misrepresent the gospel, twist the word of God, echo Satan, and send people straight to hell with their words. God's word is so clear. I could end the sermon on this three-word commandment written in stone by the finger of God. Do not murder. And so if you came from a church that tried to assuage you in your sin, or extol it as though it were a virtue. They've done you no services. God's going to deal with them. Here's what God actually said. Do not murder. It is not extremist to hold this view. It is not. It is merely coherent. It is logic on the basis of the Logos himself. Watch as cultural wars are waged and the alterations of definitions in dictionaries. In an Orwellian tactic, if you, can, if you can erode language 
and its validity, you can cause cultural shifts to accommodate and tolerate what was previously unthinkable, what is logically untenable. It is happening now. Our sense of pronouns has suddenly totally been divorced from any sense of singular versus plural, for example. Language is dying. This is not extremist. I think that it is extreme to systematically dismember a baby in the womb. That is extreme. That is murder. God said, do not murder. I believe him. That is not, in fact, extreme. But as plain as this is, as clear as this is, as obvious as this is, as in fact logical and sane and rational as this is, what I've discovered is that my pro-choice friends, and yes, I have pro-choice friends, for now, until I finish this sermon, I might lose some. But isn't, it, isn't, like a, doesn't, doesn't an unwillingness to offend your friends disqualify you from preaching? Do you see what I'm saying? That's why I dread these sermons because every time I do it, I just know like, oh man, I'm gonna get some hate mail over this one. Ironically, I've gotten death threats after this. Isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of self-fulfilling? Do you see what I mean? <laughs> like like they, they'll, I'll, I'll say, do not murder and they'll threaten to murder me. And I'll be like, see? All right, so believe it or not, I do. I have, I have pro-choice friends. I have many of them. It's part of why, as a pastor, I try to always keep some avenue. Drumming has been that for me to be able to get out of the church bubble and be a part of the world because I don't drift up high to the top floor of the ivory tower and just disconnect from the ability to evangelize people on the street. And as I've, as I've engaged with people like this who have then come to Christ and been saved, usually the gospel is where it begins, Okay, it doesn't usually begin with me debating someone on the merits of the pro-choice argument, the pro-life argument, and then comparing the two in a log logical, systematic fashion in a formal debate. It doesn't begin that way. It doesn't begin with me first starting to like twisting their arm until they say uncle and they admit like, yeah, it's wrong to kill babies. Because that's not actually a hard argument to win, frankly. I mean, the argument ought not take place. The reason that they are arguing for the unthinkable, for the untenable, for the in, they're trying to defend the indefensible is because of sin and its blindness that it causes. And then when the Holy Spirit of God rushes in, the scales fall from their eyes and then they see and they look upon their past actions with horror. I have seen it. She was a pro-choice activist, a militant atheist. She gave her life to Jesus and then she came to my office with tears in her eyes three months after giving her life to Christ. She had participated in a pro-choice demonstration. News cameras were there. She was sure to put on a good, passionate face for the camera, and she was proud of what she had done. Then she got saved. And then it dawned on her, that photo is going to be in public record somewhere. That, so, that may have been a journalist for MSNBC. That may have been a photographer who would sell it to the New York Times and then my face will one day be on some sort of advertisement or some sort of cover for the, for the pro-choice movement because at the time I genuinely thought, she said, Jesse, I genuinely thought I was standing up for women's rights. I genuinely thought that it was about freedom for women, equality for women. I genuinely thought that. I don't know how I thought that, but I genuinely felt that way. And now looking back on it in horror, I realized like I was advocating for women to be cut into pieces, dissolved in saline, decapitated, reassembled at a table to make sure they didn't miss anything and then flushed down a toilet. That's what I was arguing for. That's what I was yelling about. That's what I was passionate over. And with horror, she sobbed, realizing only after getting saved, what was really going on. And so that's why I'm going to share the gospel in this pro-life sermon. Because to me, there's no argument. Stop killing your kids. Okay, there's no argument here. And I recognize that I could win that argument handily, easily, and then miss the point and you could still die and go to hell. Okay, do you understand? There are probably a lot of pro-life people in hell. Being pro-life does not save you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what saves you. I believe that a pro-life view is symptomatic of illumination of the soul by the Holy Spirit because he is the way. He is the truth, and he is the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through him. And once you have the Holy Spirit of God, the scales fall from your eyes. You become a new creation. The old you is dead and gone. You are raised to walk in a new life. And so in the meantime, how do I get my pro-choice friends from advocating for the indefensible, which I have seen over and over again, having led several people to Christ, having seen several militant, anti-God atheists, ironically enough, come to faith in Christ. I've seen numerous people go from the pro-choice view to, frankly, salvation, and then pro-life becomes a symptom of their salvation. I've seen this over and over again. I know that it's, it starts with the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It's why I don't do a lot of political stuff anymore. I used to, all right? When I graduated from Florida State with a degree in percussion performance, I felt like I was ready to take on the whole political system. You see where we're going here, all right? I had figured out the whole of government and economics, and as an independent adult, I was ready to go toe-to-toe with anyone, in fact, eager. In fact, in my flesh, in my pride, I enjoyed arguing. I liked it. I craved it. I sought it out because I wanted to argue. And after a while, 22-year-old me began to see, like, this isn't really bearing fruit, (laughs) I I can't really point to anything and say like, yeah, God did something awesome there. And so the Holy Spirit began to just humble me and show me like, Jesse, you could win every debate. You could win every argument and every person whom you just bulldoze still goes to hell. So which are you advocating for? Right, which which are you advocating for? Are you advocating for the gospel of Jesus Christ or are you just trying to advocate for your own the superiority of your own worldview, which you didn't write, by the way. And so I lead with the gospel. This is why we evangelize. This is why we evangelize. And this is how it begins. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A false teaching straight from the pit of hell, cloaked in churchy verbiage, even under a sign, maybe even with a cross on it. They may claim the name of Jesus, and they may adorn themselves in self appointed regalia with robes and sashes and pointy hats and veils and chains. And they may look really, really formal, way more formal than this. Okay, I'm sitting with a music stand and an iPad. Okay, that's the pipe and drape that goes under the movie theater screen. If you didn't know that, we rent a movie theater, okay? So I don't have all of the regalia. I don't have like the marble walls and I don't have some fancy podium, but I have the word of God. Is that an upper redemption church? So this, this is what we have. I, in all of that, you don't win anyone to Christ by compromising the gospel. You will never see anybody saved by a watered down gospel. And you cannot lead someone to Christ into salvation from their sin by first pretending like their sin is not sin. Don't placate them in their cancer and tell them you don't really have cancer. You're fine. You're made this way. You were born this way. And affirm their cancer. No, to the glory of God, cut the cancer out. Repent from sin, amen? And so I can't do that. If if anybody tells you that God's okay with your sin, they're lying, it's a false teacher, it's a false prophet, a false teaching from the pit of hell leads no one to Christ, is an enemy of God, and will face the scariest verbiage in all of scripture. Do not murder. Exodus 20, 13. Here's another one. All right, Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. Rescue those being taken off to death and save those stumbling towards slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. In Genesis chapter four, verses one through 17, God appointed something else. He, he, he establishes something profound about the, the loss of human life. The man was intimate with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. So she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock. 
and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, this is a profound passage that deserves thorough exposition and it will be expounded upon in our upcoming study plan. But let me just point this out briefly. All right, your sin is crouching at the door. It's right there. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's, God expects you to exercise this radical thing called self-control. Every bad thing that's ever happened in my life has been because of a lack of self-control on my part, deviating from the word of God. Every good thing that is in my life, and there are boatloads of them, have all straight up come from the word of God. And what is common for everyone, this side of heaven, is that sin is crouching at the door and you must rule over it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that we're never tempted beyond what we can bear. But when temptation comes, God always provides a way for us to stand up under it. I wrote a book on this for Lifeway. It's called The Way Out. And every time we sin, it's our own stupid fault because God even rigged the game to guarantee that we could win and we still lost. Particularly if you've been walking with the Lord and you know the word of God, you know better. You and I know better. When we sin, Christian, we knew better. God provided a way out and we chose not to take it. So we have no one to blame our sin on. We have no excuse for our sin. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to kick our tails. But God's expectation since just outside of Eden is that we must rule over it. It's hard too, man, because we're born with a sin nature. We're born with a natural proclivity unto sin. This is not to say that unborn babies have sinned. In fact, this would come up in discussion between Jesus and his disciples. John chapter nine, the man born blind, the question is asked, so who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this has been done so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Moreover, Romans chapter nine is established that God would choose the descendants of the younger twin over the descendants of the older twin, that he would choose just to demonstrate his elective power, that his purposes in election might stand, he preordained, and the word says, before they had done anything right or wrong, before they were even born. Yet David would write in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Unborn babies, born into a fallen world, hardwired into our DNA is a natural proclivity unto sin. We're all born this way. That's the funny thing about in discussions of human sexuality, the born this way narrative. We're all born this way. We're all born with a natural proclivity unto sin. Even if you never face a single moment of same-sex attraction in your life, you still are born with a natural proclivity unto lust. And is that somehow more holy? We're all born. We're all expected to abide by the standards God gives us for our bodies. This is part of the discussion on abortion as well. It seems to me that most pro-choice arguments are framed upon this bizarre presupposition that the pro-life cause raped every woman. That's obviously not the case. But that to me seems to be the only premise upon which those arguments would make sense. And there seems to be no consideration at all for this radical thing called, are you ready for this? Self-control. Right, in which you actually can. You believe it or not, you can. You can, it is possible to. Okay, my wife and I did it. Save yourself for this thing called marriage. Okay, write that down. Marriage, it's, I'm not making this up. This is not a radical idea. It's been around thousands of years. God ordained it and it's quite perfect. But self-control seems to be completely out, out of the discussion, especially here in Seattle, especially in our highly liberal, militantly pro-choice culture. No one talks about this. Your sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, 
Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Some of you guys know that as, am I my brother's, say it with me, keeper, right? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Do you see these words right here? This is what gives me chills more than anything. Your brother's blood cries out, and then say those words, I wrote that rectangle around. Mark Dixon, it's to me. Say it with me, ready? To me. He's saying that blood that you spilled on the ground is crying out to me. You see the implications for a militantly pro-choice city in which political leaders have said, over my dead body, will we stop abortion in this state? Do you see the irony of that? He better be careful. God may oblige. Over my dead body, will we stop stacking the dead bodies of innocent babies? And the blood cries out to God from the ground. Do you see what I mean? I can't, in good conscience, skip this to be somehow more appealing to pro-choice listeners because I'll answer to God for knowing Genesis 1 and Genesis 4 and Genesis 9. And I'll go to God, go before God in judgment one day, knowing everything his word says about the sanctity of human life and then choose somehow not to say it? When the whole nation is aligned on this same topic at the same time on the same day, the foremost issue of our culture, I can't stand before God having withheld this from you so that you'll like me more. I would fail you as a pastor. I would fail my calling, but didn't dare offend you with the word of God. Genesis 4 continues, verse 11. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Do you know that Cain and God talked? This is seldom taught. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Now this, by the way, is gonna open up a whole other can of worms that has nothing to do with the sanctity of human life. But whoever finds me, who's he worried about finding him? You ever wondered that? What's going on past the land of Nod? Right? I thought that it was Adam and Eve and then it was like incest fest and now we came. Right? Look at this. Whoever finds me will kill me. Evidently, Cain was worried about somebody else finding him. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Look at the grace of God. He's been so stern with Cain and righteously just with Cain. And now every time God does this, he also provides mercy, doesn't he? Every time there's that outpouring of the wrath upon evil, every time he even disciplines his own, there's always mercy, there's always grace. Do you hear me, my pro-choice friend? There's mercy in repentance. There's always grace with God. He's even showing grace to Cain and he's going to mark Cain so that no one will do to Cain what Cain did to Abel. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him, whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, the very next verse is often left off of this passage. I wanna show you that there was some modicum of redemption for Cain and he was used in the kingdom of God. Cain was intimate with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Look at this. Nobody ever talks about this. Then Cain, Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. The story didn't end after Cain killed Abel. God protected Cain from retributive justice. He saw to it that Cain would never suffer the fate that he visited upon his brother. That is total grace, isn't it? Because it would have been by some earthly standard, quite fair. All right, for Cain to suffer exactly what he had done to Abel, but God marked him instead. Now, fast forward 
to the Noahic covenant. We talked about the, the Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Here is Genesis chapter nine. God is reinstituting the first covenant. And in it, we see something important. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is important. This was a reiteration of what God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All right. It is a good thing to make babies. In fact, while we were in Washington, D.C., my son Asher got a big kick out of all the signs that just said, make babies. And that was it. <laughs> Going around holding a sign. Imagine that one on the, on the metro. You know, you're holding it. That was you arriving at your stop? Were you just saying this is make babies? <laughs> this is, it, it's, it's quite perfect actually because we are not just anti-abortion, we are in fact pro-life. And this was not even a protest. It is literally called the March for Life. So to the glory of God, right, single people of the Redemption Church get married, make babies. Married couples of the Redemption Church, make more babies. May we fill this platform with more babies in the next baby dedication day. This is one of our first commissionings. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We talked about this, how the whole world's population could fit shoulder to shoulder on Rhode Island. That sounds fatuous until you realize it's basic arithmetic. The world's population divided by the square footage of the smallest state. There is not an overpopulation problem. Arithmetically, there is not a world overpopulation problem. In fact, we're still, we still gotta work on this. Be fruitful, multiply, it says. Multiply, have babies, have lots of them. Truth be told, once a married couple has two kids, they still have more work to do. Because once you've had two kids, what have you really done? Replaced yourselves. Crank them out, Christians. Crank them out. Go. There are Gatorades at the door, married couples. Once you've had four kids, you've actually multiplied by two. Do you see? Multiply. Fill the earth. Have lots of babies. Men, go earn lots of money, especially around here. This is what it takes. Does that make you feel better about your job, husbands? Right, you, you're being commissioned to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. You'll notice that there are people who are adamant protectors of animals and are pro-choice. This is a paradox. As a young boy growing up in Florida, carrying my surfboard out to the beach, I would pray that I didn't step on a turtle's nest because I would probably go to prison the rest of my life. All right, but later that day, somebody down the street would have an abortion and the whole thing would be protected in private. Bald eagles have more rights than human babies. This is a problem. This is a reversal of order. Our friends who are godless need some sort of moral code. They, have some, they, they feel this compulsion to just suppress the truth of God to get away with sin, but they also want to look virtuous while they do. And so, hey man, environmentalism sounds like a pretty solid, righteous moral code. I'm saving the earth by being vegan. See, look how righteous I am. And I will protect these turtle eggs with my life. And everything that they feel about animals, they ought to feel for human babies. When I encounter PETA activists, which I have before, ironically, on my way to Jimmy John's to eat a sandwich that like five animals had to die to make. And meeting them in their arguments as they begin to compel us not to go into Jimmy John's, they made a series of exquisite pro-life arguments. And I said, I commit to you right now, I will go full-on vegetarian for a month if you go say that at Planned Parenthood. And they wouldn't, so I got a sandwich. 
But everything that came out of their mouth was a perfectly exquisite pro-life argument, just not human life, every other kind of life. Here's the truth. We have been given dominion over animals. They are ours to do with what we will. As Christians, we ought to be for the environment because we were the ones charged by God for its stewardship. But it is under our authority. Okay, if we wanna eat an entire species, we can. That's not sin. That may be poor stewardship, maybe a bad thing for us to do. I mean, we may have failed in this commissioning, but it's not sin because they've been placed under our authority. It is, uh, here's a radical statement that we get a tenured professor at University of Washington fired. Humans are superior to animals. There, I said it. That's common sense. And everybody knows it, including the tenured professors at University of Washington. They all know it, but they dare not say it because we want some sort of weird environmentalist moral code. And instead, environmentalists will go so far as to completely reverse this, basically making the argument for the polar opposite of what God said, saying that mankind is not the stewards of creation. We are not the ones who have been put in charge with caring for creation. In fact, we are a, we are a scourge upon the earth. We're a plague upon the earth. And the earth would be better off without us. And they end up making a case for genocide. When your virtue signaling becomes an unironic case for mass genocide, a straight up murder rationale, there's something wrong with your worldview. It ends up being the polar opposite of what God actually said in his word. Yeah, but Jesse, humans are the only species that drink the milk that's produced by another species. Yeah, we do a lot of other stuff that animals don't do too. Like study our own genomes and build airplanes, okay? And go to Applebee's after church and, you know, talk. That's why we like parrots because they can pretend to talk. That's what makes them so cool. We have the capacity for speech. I was talking to my sons about this. Have you ever considered how everything is designed? It seems like the human body was just designed to speak. I mean, structurally, everything about it, it just, it seems designed around this right here. We have these pretty big lungs for bodies our sizes. And then everything kind of culminates here where the sound is made. And then the faculties by which you can articulate are all right here. And then right next to them are the other faculties by which you can hear the other person speak. And then these are all strategically positioned by the devices by which you can see the other person speaking to you. And so everything, everything is built around the word. Everything starts around the, 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 the capacity for humans to speak, to use words. We are clearly given authority and dominion over all of creation. No, no animal's life is worth a human life. All right, no animal's life is worth a human's life. We have been given authority over all of creation. And so watch for this. As environmentalism becomes radically pro-choice, they do so with this bizarre argument that it is good for us to end as many human lives as possible to spare the lives of as many animals as possible. This is a polar opposite of creation order and nobody actually believes it because they wear leather shoes when they do. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave green plants, I have given you everything. This was an update. The menu in the Garden of Eden was vegetarian. I'm so glad I wasn't born then. Garden of Eden must have been nice. But as of this point, clean meat animals go on the menu. And then upon the New Testament, Acts chapter 10, now everything's on the menu. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Okay, this is why Ben Shapiro adds this onto some sort of weird quasi gospel that he preaches. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful, multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Jeremiah gives this incredible incredible teaching about the foreknowledge of God in human lives and our purposes. It's quite incredible to behold. Now it is specific to Jeremiah, but it teaches us about God and his foreknowledge in a way that you have to apply universally to all human life. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four, the word of the Lord 
came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, that's God speaking to Jeremiah about Jeremiah. Verse six, Jeremiah gives us the dialogue. He says, but I protested. Oh no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. Then the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth for you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of anyone for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. This is at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. Deeply profound. It indicates something incredible about the foreknowledge of God, his absolute omniscience, knowing us, knowing you before you were born. Before you were born. Look at this. He even says, before I formed you in the womb. Do you see that? Behold, once again, the beautiful, exquisite omniscience of God. This is not only before he was born, before he was even conceived, before reproductive zygote met reproductive zygote, before, before his genotype was even codified by dioxyribonucleic acid, before any of that, before he even physically existed, God knew. God knew. And he chose Jeremiah. I chose you and I set you apart before you were born, before he even formed him in the womb. And he was already appointed to be a prophet to the nations. So you'll see in, as we, and when we arrive at our study plan, the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah was to speak the word of God to the kings of Judah and he would not be listened to. You had these kings, these leaders, these governmental authorities and God always seemed to have a prophet there. We saw Isaiah and the various kings to whom he would speak and then Jeremiah would likewise speak right up to the point of the exile. And whether or not these governmental leaders would listen to the prophet, God already knew exactly how things were gonna go. He would even tell Jeremiah Look, they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to speak anyway. All right, that it's known. God is on the record, having foretold how this thing would go. Now, this is what it means to prophesy, to speak the word of God. Jeremiah would speak the word of God, and in being touched by God, having God's words put in his mouth, he would then predict the future. So we associate prophecy with the prediction of the future. And that was by default, part of the nature of Jeremiah's ministry. That's by default what happens when you study the book of Revelation. By default, that's what it is. But that's, we have a narrow definition of prophecy today. And if you come from a denominational background that doesn't revere the word of God as the authoritative sole source of all teaching, all revelation, then you might have this slightly mixed up view of what prophecy is. The idea that to prophesy is then to get up in front of a crowd of people and close your Bible and then speak on your own, hopefully from something the Holy Spirit of God has laid upon your heart. But those prophecies don't always come true, so what's the deal? Moreover, we know that the word of God is explicitly clear. Revelation 22, 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. These are the final words of the Bible. So if you come from a background whereupon prophecy is just something that somebody does at church and it may or may not be accurate, it's not prophecy. And if prophecy is to be commensurate with scripture, then what you've just done is the opposite of what this says. You've actually added on to the word of God. But if you acknowledge that personal revelations are somehow less than scripture, then why share them instead of scripture? It's choosing to teach from something that is less. This is what God said. This is what prophecy is. This is Jeremiah's commissioning is to prophesy, to speak the words of God. That's how we do this at the Redemption Church. We speak the word of God. And next year, as we go through this year of prophecy, prophetic teachings, all from the word of God, we will in fact 
B, experiencing prophecy as this word of God describes things that haven't yet come to pass. And God's warning to Jeremiah was, do not be afraid. You're gonna say whatever I tell you to say. Can you understand now why, even though I get nervous before sermons like this one, I gotta do it. I've gotta do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of anyone, the text says, for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. So this is God commissioning Jeremiah, knowing him before he was even conceived, before he was even formed in the womb. Imagine that a crowd of people is trying to leave somewhere and they have knocked a large door over from top to bottom, bursting it from its hinges and causing it to collapse onto something. And as people motivated to leave and to flee, begin to run on top of this door. They can sense yet not see that there may be people underneath it. And so the crowd is piling out and they don't see the people underneath the door whom they are crushing with their weight, but they might hear them and they might feel them, but they cannot lay eyes on them and so they selfishly escape from what is hunting them within. They don't see the people that they are killing until somebody says, stop, there are people under this door. And then, motivated hopefully by some sense of ethical obligation by the conscience which God gave them by the Holy Spirit's conviction unto salvation and repentance. They stop, they can lift up the door, they can save those who are underneath before their blood is spilled. Abortion ends human life and it is always fundamentally wrong to take an innocent human life. It's always wrong. It's just always wrong. There is no imaginary line whereupon someone is imbued with personhood and then it's wrong to kill them. But it's open season on them before they cross that threshold. They differ from you and I merely in their size, their level of development, their environment, and their degree of dependency. And by those standards, anyone who is small, anyone who is undeveloped, anyone who is born with a deformity, anyone who is dependent, anyone born with special needs, by that standard that arbitrarily seems to rationalize abortion could be used to justify mass genocide on anyone who is different. When you're in the business of drawing arbitrary lines and saying everybody on this side of the line is a human being, everyone on that side of the line can die. You have just joined the company of mass homicidal maniacs past. And in the same way that you and I look back across American history and we want to shake Christians by the shoulders who are apologists for slavery, we want to smack them and say, how could you possibly tolerate this? These are human beings. Future generations of Christianity will look back upon this era and think the same about pro-choice Christians. Those are human beings. How could you possibly think this is okay? Stop. Stop. I, I, don't, I don't know what rationale you have for ending another human's life. It does not matter. It's human life. I was once presented with this question as though it were some big, huge stumper. Jesse, can you imagine what might motivate a woman to have an abortion? And this question effectively brings up, like, can you understand her motivation to end a human life? That's what the question is, reductio ad absurdum. It's, it's in fact trying to somehow defend her murder rationale. Is it money? That's not a reason to kill someone. Is it inconvenience? That's not a reason to kill someone. Because you need diapers? That's not a reason to kill someone. Because baby food's expensive. That's not a reason to kill someone. It's because her dad's a jerk. That's a horrible reason to kill someone. It's because her dad raped you. That's also not a reason to kill someone. 
None of these is a reason to kill someone. Okay, you're running over the door. There are human beings. You may not be able to see them, but their lives matter. So stop. Turn the machine off. In Washington State, that arbitrary line is called viability. It's the stupidest, most wicked, and unethical thing I've ever seen in all of jurisprudence. That when a baby can live, they can live. And so we have absolute open season on babies in this state. I mean, they, they, you can abort a baby seemingly at any time without restriction. And the, the standard, the legal limit is viability. Do you know why I took Asher with me to the March for Life? Is because he was born prematurely, well within the range that would come before viability. He would have been fully abortable in Washington state right now. And yet he's with us in worship today. And babies are born viable at increasingly low weights and early birth rates. Babies are able to survive. Babies babies are always viable. They're always viable. It's why we perform surgery on them. Being unwanted does not rationalize killing someone. Being a financial inconvenience doesn't rationalize killing someone because it's not time for you doesn't rationalize killing someone. Absolutely, human babies are human beings. You follow me on that? Because believe it or not, there is a scientific argument to the contrary, that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. It's an utter, actual, appropriate use of the word, abortion of science. It presupposes that you somehow morph to a series of different species before you're born. Nowhere else in all of biology do we presuppose this. That upon conception, you are a carrot, then you become a banana, then you become a squirrel, then you become a human. Okay, now that's a, that's a, a, a fatuous rendering of it, but that's effectively the argument, and it's not true. And it's falsifiability is so patent, it's so clear, it's just motivated by sin, it's just blindness. So we have this arbitrary standard that is viability. Everybody on this side of the viability line, if we say that you're viable, you get to live. If not, we can cut your head off. All babies are viable until you cut their heads off. This is not hard to understand. But brilliant people who are otherwise very kind people are blinded by sin. It's why this begins with the gospel. Viability? Are you kidding me? The baby was perfectly viable until you injected that stuff. The baby was perfectly viable until you intervened with sharp instruments. The baby was perfectly viable until you forced a miscarriage. And don't even get me started on how many women my wife and I have ministered to over the years who have been utterly traumatized and distraught because they felt pressured into an abortion. They deeply regretted their abortion. And they were haunted by their abortion. It is the worst thing that has ever happened to women. It's not women's rights. It's an abomination. It's massively destructive for women. God has formed us in the womb before we were even born and we absolutely have value in his sight. Babies are always viable until you kill them. If you draw an arbitrary line and say, this is where it's okay for you to live, this is where it's okay for me to kill you, you've effectively said everybody on this side of the line into the gas chambers. Everybody on this side of the line into the prison camps. Everybody on this side of the line is subhuman, is less than human. You have taken on the straight up plantation owner ethic. God help you. Repent today. May the scales fall from your eyes. They're human. They're human. They're human. They're human. You're human beings. It's never okay to cut them into pieces. God have mercy on us. Funding atrocities like genocide with tax dollars. God have mercy. God forgive us. God show us mercy. Always, always, always viable until you kill them. Just ask Curtis Zai Keith Means. Born at just 21 weeks gestation. That's nearly five months premature. Alive, viable, abortable, according to Washington standards. Babies can be born smaller and smaller. Asher fit in my hand. 
when he was born. Just ask Quek Yu Zhuan, of whom there's definitive proof she survived after being delivered by emergency C-section at 7.48 ounces. She weighed as much as an apple, and she is alive today. Viable? Come on, Washington State. That's cowardice. That's cowardly. It's wicked, it's vile, it's evil, it's murder. Viable? We're all viable until you kill us. God show mercy on our state, amen? May there be repentance. May there be repentance. May there be repentance. In Revelation, in Jeremiah, we see God ordaining prophecy. We see this call to not be afraid. This is my son, Asher. This is two days ago. That's the Washington Monument behind him. He's holding a sign that says, love life, choose life. Asher was born in a range that would have made him perfectly legal to abort in Washington State. He would have been considered non-viable. Does he look viable to you, Redemption Church? He looks quite viable to me. And there he is with a sign, love life, choose life. Did you know that we're not alone? Okay, if you're pro-life like I am, we're not alone. There are more of us. There are actually lots of us. I don't see if the, these, these photos do it justice, but like we were forced legally to stay on the street and not pile over the sidewalks and into the National Mall. It was freezing outside and it was snowing and yet still tens upon tens of thousands of people all piled into the National Mall to march for life together. And as someone who doesn't always exhibit the full extent of patience that a pastor ought to exhibit for things like traffic, I instinctively, with Asher, felt compelled to like look up and be like, what's going on? Everybody's taller than me. Why aren't we walking? Why aren't we moving here? And then it dawned on me, like, this is the most blessed traffic jam ever. Like, for the first time in my life, I thanked God for congestion and traffic that made it impossible for Asher and I to move because our shoulders were stuck together and we were packed in with all of these people and we could not move. It took an hour for the thing to even start moving. In every direction, everybody we saw was there to make the case for life, except for one dude who wanted to bring attention to himself. It was really beautiful. There were people from various denominations. Several Catholic leaders were there. Their leaders wore impressive hats. All right, I sat down with some priests at some point and I reserved my desire to debate theology and things like that because I knew that this is something that we have in common. This is an important point of resonance and lives are on the line. God was moving in this crowd at our nation's capital, up Capitol Hill, right there where laws are decided. Now, because of Roe versus Wade being overturned, we now go around the Capitol building and between the Capitol building and the Supreme Court building. It was beautiful to behold and it was massive and I don't care what the news says, there were countless tens of thousands of people there. It was incredible. I'm so glad that my son got to see it. We're not alone. We're not alone. We're not alone. I know living all the way out here in Washington, it can feel like we're isolated. It can feel like we're outnumbered. And perhaps statistically we are, at least in King County. Anybody ever been to Spokane? All right, we, we may feel outnumbered, but we are not alone. Now these marches are going down to the state level. So let's pray. And we'll have uh, uh, opportunities this week through our devotions and through our curriculum to enact some of exactly this. Because as, as we experience God's move, my prayer is that scales fall from eyes and we no longer make stupid genocidal arguments and then legislate with them. My prayer is that we would no longer act as though we're trying to bring hell to earth. My prayer is there be mass repentance. Okay, here are some passages we're gonna look at this week, like Jeremiah 31, 40 and 2 Chronicles 33 and Jeremiah 7 and 2 Chronicles 28, Isaiah 30 and 2 Kings 23, Psalm 139. 
In the interest of time, we're going to cover these through our devotions and our curriculum this week. But I want to close with this word. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Do you see? He knows. He's always known. And he loves you anyway. Would you repent today? He knows about your past abortion. He knows. He knows about any sin. If he's drawing upon your heart, would you give your life to Christ today? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's room. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. He knows. He knows you. He knows about every last one of your sins. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you stand as we close in prayer? If the Holy Spirit of God is drawn upon your heart, you didn't know that he knew, that he's always known. Would you give your life to him right here and now? God, I give you glory. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I believe that you love the world, that you gave your one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. So, filled with the Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, let me be saved, saved, saved in Jesus' name, amen. If you've given your heart and life to Christ today, would you let us know? The next step is to baptize you. If you need prayer for anything at all, come meet our team right here. Let's close and worship together.